Well, if you're just joining us, we're in a series on the book of Mark, and we're talking about how, uh, we're talking about the life of Jesus. And so uh, last week we said that uh, Mark is the first written account of the life of Jesus. And so, uh, you know, about 60 or 70 AD, Mark sat down and, uh, and, and put a pen to paper, as it were, and wrote the, the life of Jesus down. Before that time, uh, the life of Jesus was sort of passed down through oral testimony and through little fragments of sayings of Jesus. Uh, but until this point, there was no a full narrative of the life of Christ. Now, why did, why did John write? It's because, you know, about this time, you know, the original uh, eyewitnesses and apostles were beginning to die off. And so it became easier to distort Jesus, to sort of create a Jesus that you wanted to believe in instead of the real Jesus. And so Mark writes the book of Mark to, uh, as if to say, this is the real Jesus. This is who he was. Uh, if you want to follow him, this is what he looks like. And so uh, we're looking here at the book of Mark. And Mark, last week, he talked about uh, the identity of Jesus. And he said that Jesus is this towering figure, this, uh, this royal figure, uh, a figure with uh, uh, earth-shattering authority. Uh, he's the Messiah, you know. He is the, uh, he's the, he's the king of the world, is what Mark want, wanted us to see last week. And uh, uh, this week, we, uh, in verse 14, we read the first words of Jesus, where he says this. It says, that Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so here this royal figure comes preaching a kingdom, uh, talking about how, uh, you know, he's bringing in the reign of God. You know, God is becoming king in Jesus. And so here he's, he's preaching the administration uh, of God broken into the world. And, uh, you know, as I was reading these verses, it struck me that of all the things that Jesus is, Messiah, Son of God, you know, towering imperial figure, if all of that is true, of all the things that Jesus is, he is at very least a leader. He's a leader, isn't he? And, uh, you know, as a, as a leader myself, or as a wannabe leader, <laughs> you know, I study leadership books and try to learn uh, to do what I do well. And, uh, you know, all the books you read on leadership say that there are two things that mark any good leader. There are two sort of irreducible uh, aspects of leadership. And one of those things is influence. In fact, uh, John Maxwell, who's, uh, who writes on leadership, he says that uh, leadership is influence. And, uh, you know, if you look at Jesus, I mean, who had more influence than Jesus Christ? I mean, literally most of the world bases history on his life, on his birth, right? And so, you know, if you were to take a big, you know, gigantic uh, uh, magnet and suck everything out of history that Jesus influenced, there'd hardly be anything left. I mean, Jesus has incredible influence. He's a leader. And uh, the second thing they say that marks every good leader is leaders have followers, right? And so if, you're, if you think you're a leader... Uh, look behind you. If there are people following you, then you're a leader. And, uh, and so that's the second thing that marks a leader. And so when you look at Jesus, uh, one of the things that marks his leadership is followers. And who had more followers than Jesus? I mean, countless millions. or You know, many, many people in our world today follow Jesus. They count Jesus as their leader. And this morning, we're going to look at the very first thing Jesus does as he begins his ministry is he begins calling people to follow him. Verses 16 to 20 is the account of, of the very first disciples as Jesus called them to follow after him. 
And as we look at this, we learn something very important for us today, and that is that to, to be a Christian essentially is to be someone who follows Jesus as their leader. You know, if you look at the New Testament, the word Christian is used three times. But the word disciple is used 269 times. And what that means is that, uh, you know, being a Christian is about following Jesus. It's about looking to Jesus as your leader. It's not simply about believing some things about God and the Bible and things, you know, that's important. But essentially what marks somebody as a Christian is that they follow Jesus. And so here's the question this morning. Are you following him? Are you a disciple? And, and, and what does discipleship involve anyway? I mean, if, I'm gonna, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I mean, how do I know that I'm following Jesus? Well, this morning as we look at this passage, what I want to do is give you four things that following Jesus involves. If you want to know if you're actually following Jesus as your leader, here are four things to sort of test yourself with. Uh, these are four aspects, four marks of what it means to be a disciple. And let me give you them up front. First, it means it involves allegiance, it involves obedience, it involves participation, and finally, transformation. Okay, so let's look at the first one. Following Jesus involves allegiance. <clears throat> Verse 16, passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea. For they were fishermen, and Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John uh, casting nets or mending nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they followed him. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, number one, it means to give your utter and complete allegiance to him. It means to, to offer total devotion to him. It means that all of your life, all of who you are, you are offering to Jesus in complete and total allegiance. Now, you'll notice that when Jesus called the first disciples, the first thing they did is they left. They left their careers and they left their family, right? And so Simon and Andrew, he said, follow me, and they dropped their nets, they dropped their career, and they went and followed Jesus. And then he goes to James and John, and they immediately uh, leave their father Zebedee in the boat there, <laughs> and all the hired servants, and they up, leave their family, and they follow Jesus. <clears throat> and so essentially what following Jesus means is it means leaving all your other allegiances, letting go of all your other devotions, and making Jesus the number one exclusive priority in your life. Now notice what Tim Keller says about this. He says in traditional cultures, you get your identity from your family. And so when Jesus said to uh, James and John, I want, my, I want priority over your family, that's drastic. In our individualistic culture, on the other hand, saying goodbye to our parents isn't really a big deal. Look, I've moved away from my parents. <laughs> I said goodbye to them. Uh, in our modern culture, individualism, that's not such a big deal. But for Jesus to say, I want priority over your career, now that's drastic. Jesus is saying, knowing me, loving me, resembling me, serving me, must become the supreme passion of your life. Everything else comes second. And so what does it mean to follow Jesus? It means that you, you orbit your entire life around him. All your allegiance in totality is offered to him. Uh, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote a great book on discipleship, which, by the way, is well worth reading if you're interested in following Jesus, he put it this way. He said, 
When we're called to follow Christ, we are summoned to an exclusive attachment to his person. And so I was thinking about that. I mean, where else in our culture do we see anything like this? And the only thing I could, you know, even think of that came remotely close to giving your exclusive, you know, allegiance to a person is marriage. And, you know, I do a lot of marriages, and and there's one line in the ceremony that always gets me. It's when the, the husband and wife, they face each other, and they say, forsaking all others, I give myself exclusively to you. In an ultimate sense, this is what Jesus is calling us to do in discipleship. To forsake everything else and make him your number one priority. And by the way, this is why baptism is so important. You know, when you come out and you get baptized, one of the things you're saying is, I am giving myself my my exclusive allegiance to Jesus. And uh, I remember there was a girl in our community years ago. And uh, she was somebody who came to our church and she was interested in following Jesus. And, uh, you know, she was intellectually engaged by the claims of Christ. And she thought Jesus was so intriguing. And I noticed it in her. She was bringing all of her friends to church. And so I came to her one day, and I said, hey, why don't you get baptized? And she said, "Uh, no, mm -mm, not going to do that. And I said, but you believe in Jesus, right? Yeah. I think he's, uh, you know, I'm sure I'm very intrigued by Jesus. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, a lot of people are afraid of baptism because you have to get in a bathing suit in front of everybody, you know, and you've got to get wet in front of everybody. But I began to probe her, and she said, look, my family's Jewish. And I, frankly, I, I like Judaism. And there, I just cannot come out and exclusively give myself to Jesus. In other words, to follow Jesus meant losing the respect of her family. She said no. And not everybody drops their nets and follows Jesus like this. In fact, there's a story in the book of Mark where there's a rich young ruler. You remember him? And he comes to Jesus and he says, look, uh, you know, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, I want you to sell all you have and give it to the poor. In other words, Jesus says, I want you to detach your allegiance from money and give your allegiance to me. And the man said, no. Hey, I'm willing to, you know, be moral. I'm willing to be re- religious, but I'm not going to give myself exclusively to you. But that's the first thing it means to follow Jesus. Well, what is another thing it means to follow Jesus? It not only means giving your allegiance to him, but second of all, it means giving your obedience to him. Discipleship always involves obedience. Now notice in verse 17, Jesus said, follow me. Now notice that's a command, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately it says they left their nets And they what? It says they followed him. Now, at its most basic level, follow me is a command to be obeyed. And so whatever else being a follower of Jesus means, it means that when he commands, you follow, you obey. Now, at this point, uh, Jesus doesn't give these disciples a whole list of commands to do. He's not saying, hey, here's what I stand for, for, here's all the moral codes, Obey me. He doesn't do any of that. They only have one command at this point. And what is it? It's follow me. That's the only thing. But what he's doing here is he's setting up the terms of the relationship. He's saying, if you want to be my disciple, you must pre-decide that you're going to obey my commands. In other words, what Jesus is saying is to be a follower of Jesus means you give up the right to call the shots in your own life. This means in the area of your sexuality, of your sex life. 
you are willing to give him the control and say, I'll, I'll obey you in this area. This means in the area of your money. You say, Lord, I'm not in, in charge of my own money. Wh whatever you want me to do with my money, I will follow you. It means in the area of your career, in every other arena of your life, you give him the authority. You give Jesus the control. This is what it means to follow Jesus most basically. And it means that your, your com the command to obedience and, and the, and the uh, following and obeying this is an unconditional obedience. Now, uh, I've got a little boy at, at home at, named Jude, and I'm, I'm teaching Jude to obey right now, and he's having a hard time, frankly. All my kids have had a hard time, and maybe it's because their dad is kind of rebellious himself. I don't know. But uh, I'm teaching my kids to obey. Jude is having a very hard time with it. And so what Jude begins to do when I, when, I, when I command him to do something is he begins to bargain with me. <clears throat> and so I'll say, Jude, uh, it's dinner time. I want you to go sit down and eat dinner with the family. And Jude will say, no, I'm not going to do that. And I'll say, Jude, I'm your daddy. And uh, I am the dad of this house. You know, you need to go sit down and have dinner. And then Jude will say, well, daddy, I'll sit down to have dinner if you give me five chocolate chips out of the freezer, which is where we keep our chocolate chips. Um, and I'll say, no, <laughs> you've got to go eat your dinner. And then he'll say, well, okay, okay, I'll have dinner with you. If All you got to do is give me a blueberry, um, which is kind of the next step down to chocolate chips. But here, what is he doing? He, he's bargaining with dad. This is not unconditional obedience. To obey Jesus, uh, to follow him, it means that you offer him unconditional obedience. It's not, Jesus, I will follow you if my career thrives, or Jesus, I will obey you if my health stays good, or Jesus, I'll obey you if my family stays together. If you say, Jesus, I'll obey you if, whatever is on the other side of the if is what you're really following. Right? If you say, Jesus, I'll follow you if you give me a lot of money, well, really, you're not following Jesus. You're following money. Or Jesus, I'll obey you if you bring me the perfect spouse. Well, then you're following romantic love. You're not following Jesus. Whatever is on the other side of the if is your real master. And to follow Jesus, you say, Jesus, you're my master. Whatever it is you command, I will obey. <clears throat> now, and this not only has to do with, you know, your moral life, but also all of your life. This means before any decision that you make. Uh, any vocational decision or uh, marriage decision, before any decision you make, you say, Jesus, what do you want me to do? Right? I know what I want to do. I know what, which makes, what makes me most comfortable. But, but that's not the question here. Jesus, what do you want in my life? I'm following you, not me. I'm orbiting my life around you. You're not orbiting your life around me. Jesus, you're not coming into my life as an advisor or a personal assistant. You're coming in as my master. And the only proper response is, command me. And so that's the second thing that Jesus is asking. He's saying, look, I want you to follow me. I want you to obey me. I want you to, to pick up and leave and, and follow me into the unknown. Obedience. <clears throat> but following Jesus not only involves allegiance and obedience, the third thing that following Jesus involves is participation. Participation. Now, what do we mean by that? Notice uh, Jesus follows up his command with a promise in verse 17. Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. <clears throat> and then immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Now notice what Jesus says here. He says, look, 
For the most part, he's saying, follow me into the big question mark. Follow me into the dark. <laughs> follow me into the, the great unknown. Uh, you know, on one hand, he's saying that, but he's also providing us with a promise. He's saying, look, if you follow me wherever I go, if you give your life to me, I will make you fishers of men. And what does he mean by that? Well, in the Old Testament, fisher of men or fisher of people was something that only, God, that only describes God. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, God is the one who's the fisher of people. And it's kind of an ominous phrase, actually, when it speaks of God. It's, it's kind of this, um, it has to do with God's judgment, you know. In the Old Testament prophets, uh, God is bringing judgment, and he says he's the fisher of people, meaning he's pulling people out of the judgment, right? And so this is something that describes who God is and what God does. And so when Jesus tells his disciples, you will become fishers of people, what is he saying? He's inviting them in to participate in what God is doing in the world. He's saying, you want to be my follower? This is what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to come in and become part of my redemptive work. Not only in Palestine, but the whole world. I want to invite you into my work and my mission and my purpose of redemption. In other words, what Jesus is calling them into is something so much bigger than themselves. You know, here they were, and they were fishermen, and they were making money and doing the daily grind and concerned about, you know, catching fish and money and getting by. And here Jesus shows up, and he says, look, I want to call you into something bigger. I want to call you into a mission. I want to call you into a purpose. I want to call you into a life that is so much bigger than you. I want to make you fishers of men. John Tyson puts it this way. He says, to be, to be invited by Jesus to be a disciple is to be invited out of mediocrity. You are invited into a king, the kingdom of God. You go from fish to men. You go from a couple of dollars to a kingdom. So Jesus' invitation is always for something greater than your heart. And I wonder how the disciples felt as they heard this call. You know, here Jesus says, I'm good... Uh, I'm calling you out to be fishers of men. I bet that they felt excited. I mean, they jumped up, they left everything and said, yes, we're going to do this. I think they felt excited, exhilarated, but also pretty terrified. I mean, where is he going to take us? And what's it going to look like? Is it going to involve suffering? But boy, it sounds exciting. And up they went to follow Jesus into the unknown. Four years ago, I, I made the decision to follow Jesus into the unknown territory of Arkansas. And I was there living in California, and I was, you know, living by the beach, had this great little beach house, two-bedroom, uh, one-bathroom, 1,300 square feet that cost a fortune. And, uh, but there we were living very comfortably by the beach, had a great comfortable little life, and I uh, one day I decided, you know, maybe God wants me to be a pastor, you know, and I started investigating, and I was looking online, and I saw this job for a church in Batesville, Arkansas, and, you know, I, I, I looked so intriguing, you know, met in a theater, you know, missional outreach, all that stuff, but then I thought, ooh, Arkansas, but I threw my resume off, and then I looked over at Anita, and we both started laughing, like, <laughs> we supplied a job in Arkansas. And, uh, but we weren't laughing because two years later, Scott Rulier called me up and said, Brent, you know, you applied to this job. We're, we're interested. Do you know we're in Arkansas? And I said, yes. 
We said, well, let's have an interview. And so we had an interview, and, and when, when I had the interview, I was intrigued, I was excited, but then I also was very terrified because it went well. And I was thinking, what if they actually, what if this, is, what if this works? And so uh, two weeks later, Scott called me up and said, Brent, we want you to come out and, you know, hang out with the church, preach for us, we'll do an interview in person. And so we flew out here, and I remember the first night we were at, um, I forget where we were, but they, they served us um, pork and collard greens. And I remember just thinking, like, what a southern meal. I mean, so, it was so foreign to me. And going outside and feeling the humidity and hearing the frogs in the forest at night and thinking, this place is so different, it's so alive. But we went through the interview and it, it went well, you know, and, and afterwards, you know, I preached and, and Anita and I were driving back to the airport and we felt ex- incredibly exhilarated and excited, but terrified. What if this works? What if God is actually calling us to Batesville? We have no family here. You know, what if this might be God's will? And so we went home and, I, and we prayed about it. And I remember we were in the hospital there. Anita was having Jude at the time. And I remember sitting in Hogue Hospital, it's in Orange County, and, and looking out the window and just praying to God, like, God, is this really what you want me to do? And then turning back to the hospital bed, and on the side of the hospital bed, it, it said Batesville. Uh, there's a casket company, uh, apparently, in, in Batesville, Indiana, and Anita was laying on this bed, and lo and behold, on the side, it said Batesville, Arkansas, and I was like, oh my gosh. Is God calling me to go to Batesville? Is he saying that if I go to Batesville, I'll end up in a casket? <laughs> what is he saying? But we came to the point where we realized that this is where God is leading, and we decided to follow him. And I'll tell you, it felt like jumping off a cliff but it was terrifying and it was exhilarating. And Jesus is calling all of us to do the exact same thing. Now, the disciples had to leave their nets. Man, they left their families. They went into a different career. And I left California into a different church, whatever. Not all of us are called to leave our career or move away from our family, but all of us are are called to follow Jesus into his mission wherever we are. And what does that mean? That means that if you're a manager at a company, you ask the question, what is Jesus doing here? What is Jesus about here? What is God, uh, you know, what is his mission here in my workplace? And am I going to join him in his mission? Or if you're a stay-at-home mom or a stay-at-home dad, you ask the question, what is God, what does it look like for me to join Jesus in his mission at home with my kids? Or if you're at school or wherever you are, you're asking the question, Jesus, what are you doing and how can I follow you? And I'll tell you, when you begin to do that, it is terrifying, but it's exciting. When I was younger, my dad used to take us down to Laguna Beach. And uh, he used to uh, put us on this big black inner, inner tube. And at Laguna Beach, these waves, they break right on the sand and they smash there on the beach. A very powerful And my dad would take us out on this inner tube, and when when a wave came along, he would push me and my brother into the wave. And I remember being up on the edge of the wave, looking down and seeing dry sand. And and I remember thinking, my dad wants to kill me. That's what he wants to do. But I remember there are two feelings that I remember from from that moment. Terror and excitement. And this is what it feels like to follow Jesus. And if you're not terrified or exhilarated, 
you got to ask the question, am I really following Jesus in my neighborhood, in my career, or wherever he's leading? It involves risk. It involves being used by God, and it's incredibly, incredibly exciting. And so he calls us to participation, allegiance, obedience, participation, and finally he calls us into transformation. What does that look like? Verse 17, notice he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Now, I love the language there. Did you, did you notice the language? He says, follow me, and he doesn't say, I will immediately make you into fishers of men. You know, get up, leave your family, and immediately you'll be fishers of men. No, he says, follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. Following Jesus is not so much about being, but becoming. It's not so much about arriving, but a journey. It's not so much about being perfect perfect immediately, but about engaging with Jesus in the process of transformation. And what's so encouraging as you read this is that these first disciples, if you look at them, um, you know, there's nothing special about them. And in some ways, they're kind of a mess, you know, on the one hand, they're, they're, I mean, they're great examples, you know. They, Jesus calls them, and immediately they get up and they leave everything, drop the nets, and they follow Jesus. But on the other hand, when you read the narrative of Mark, these people are just, they're just screw-ups, you know? And, you know, for example, you've got Simon here. There's one place in Mark, this is later on in, in chapter 8, where uh, Jesus looks at uh, all of his disciples and says, Who do men say that I am? And they say, well, some say you're Elijah, and some say you're a prophet. But then he looks at them, and he says, well, who do you say that I am? And do you remember it was Peter who said, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus looks at Simon and says, you're so right. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. God in heaven revealed that to you. And Simon must have been feeling so awesome. And then just a breath later, Jesus says, and what that means is that I'm going to go and die. I'm going to go to the cross and suffer. And Simon says, no, you're not. Far be it from you, Lord. And he begins to rebuke Jesus. I mean, what's wrong with these guys? And then Jesus looks at Simon and says, get behind me, Satan. I mean, in a matter of a few verses, this guy tanks. Is there something sort of uh, encouraging about that? Because I do this all the time. For me, it's three steps forward, two steps back. And there are things that I've been struggling with, not just for months, but for years. And some of you guys have too. You know, and you're stuck in these patterns and you're thinking, am I ever going to get out of this? And am I really a disciple? Hey, this is what discipleship looks like. It's not about being, it's about becoming. It's not about arriving, it's about a journey. And Jesus changes you. He says, I will make you become fishers of men. It's not that you are already, but he's in the process of making you into something so much bigger than you and so beyond you, and he's able to do it. James and John, these other disciples that he calls, there's another incident where uh, Jesus uh, goes, this is in chapter 10, Jesus says, look, I'm going to the cross, and I'm going to suffer and die. I'm going to be delivered to the, the chief priests and the scribes and the authorities. And then James and John go to Jesus and they say, yeah, yeah, that's great, but when you're in your glory, can we be your assistants? That's real cool, Jesus, but we want to be in charge. 
Has your ego ever gotten in the way of you following Jesus? And do you ever get tired of it? Do you ever find yourself struggling? Well, isn't there something strangely encouraging about the fact that these disciples who immediately jumped up to follow Jesus were screwed up all the way? And yet Jesus Christ slowly but surely made them into something so much bigger than them. It's because following Jesus isn't about you mustering up power on your own and saying, Jesus, you're out there. Let me, you know, get up the courage and go follow you. I can do it. No, discipleship is all about Jesus coming into your life and filling you with his incredibly powerful spirit that raised him from the dead and giving you the power to follow Jesus, whatever that looks like in your context. And I know that every day we struggle and we fight and we fail and we screw up, but this is what discipleship and following Jesus looks like. And the promise, the promise is, he says, I will make you become fishers of men. Not I might or most everybody but you. He says, I'll make you and I'll change you. I'm going to end here, but uh, William Bishop Temple, he said this. He said, it's no use giving me a life like Shakespeare and telling me to live a life like his. Shakespeare could do it. I can't. And it's no use giving me a life like Jesus and telling me to live a life like his. Jesus could do it, but I can't. But if the genius of Shakespeare could come and live in me, then I could write plays like his. And if the spirit of Jesus could come and live in me, then I could live a life like his. And here's the good news of the gospel. The one who says, follow me, also comes and lives in you. And his commandments are his enablements. And although it may take a very, very long time, you will become fishers of men. And so the question this morning is, are you willing to follow Jesus? Not are you willing to be a Christian or are you willing to believe certain things about God in the Bible, but will you get up? Will you orbit your life around him? Will you follow him into the unknown? Will you give your life to his purpose? Will you get on the journey of becoming his follower? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this passage and God, I find it <clears throat> so uh, encouraging, but also challenging. God, we, this, this idea of allegiance and obedience, God, only you could, could ask for something like that. No other man, no mere human could ask for obedience like this. But Lord, you come to us as our creator, the, the, the author of our story, and you call us into absolute allegiance, absolute obedience. And God, we pray that as we follow you, that you would change us and transform us. God, that you would encourage us, Lord, that you are making us into people whose lives look like Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.